It's 1992 in an arcade in Chicago's Lakeview neighbourhood, and a brand new game is making its debut on test. That is an incomplete game that's exposed to the public to give developers an idea of how it will be received by players. We would do this all the time in the arcade business. You would get a game to maybe 50-60%, and you know, just to the point where it could collect coins, and you would bring it to a local arcade... Uh, you would wheel it in, you know, one Friday night, and you would, you know, sit back and, you know, just kind of watch. This is Mark Tamell, and the game, NBA Jam. Welcome to NBA Jam! And the first night, uh, some um, player picked uh, the Utah Jazz, which had John Stockton and Carl Malone. And... Uh, his opponent, you know, had another team. Tonight's matchup, Cavs versus Cavaliers. And uh, I heard the kids say, you know, don't even put it on the floor next to Stockton. He'll take it every time. Uh, because, you know, Stockton was a great, quick point guard, great, you know, steals, one of the all-time greats. And, you know, I looked at my my friend and I said, man, you know, there's... There's no stats in this game. There's no distinction between Stockton and Shaq in terms of like stealing. And yet the players were, you know, imagining that all those stats were there and everything mattered. Uh, and so that night, I remember we went back, it was after midnight, and we implemented the, the four little stats that appeared under the, the mugshot at uh, team select time, where, you know, we had speed and, you know, power and steel and three-point ability. Uh, and so we um, immediately put in that, that small UI, and then I embarked on, you know, adding all of these checks everywhere in the code you know, over the next um, several weeks. And then that's the tuning that happened for the next few months. But um, the very first game that went out in my intent was to not have stats. And that was just silly in retrospect. The game had a lot going for it already, but these tweaks to the mechanics would take the fun and competitiveness of NBA Jam to the next level. I'm James Parkinson from Lawson Media. This is Gameplay, a show about video games and the virtual worlds that power culture and community. By the early 90s, the video game industry in the United States was slowly recovering from the market crash of the mid-80s. Home consoles were starting to dominate thanks to Nintendo, but coin-op arcades still played a big role in American pop culture. Most of the big titles came out of Japan as American companies adjusted to this new landscape. Midway was one of these companies who spent much of the 80s licensing and distributing Japanese arcade games like Space Invaders and Pac-Man. But by the end of the decade, they were developing more original games. 
Midway was an arcade company over in Chicago that made tons of classic games. I mean, they had their uh, hands in all kinds of different stuff. Uh, Rampage was one of their most famous games. This is Rayan Ali, author of the book NBA Jam. And at that point, they were creating some games uh, in the States, but it was still a pretty small division. Um, and there was a, this one team in particular of these developers named uh, Brian Cullen and Jeff Nauman, who made this game called Arch Rivals. Um, now they were also the developers of Xenophobe, of Demolition Derby, some other late 80s arcade games. And, you know, they made all kinds of different games for different genres. But sometime in the late 80s, uh, they were trying to come up with what the idea would be for their next game. And one of them decided that they should do a basketball game. So they made this simple basketball game called Arch Rivals uh, that ended up being a big hit. Put it up! And what's funny is that they were working on it uh, at this company called Midway that was then acquired by Williams during the development of the game. Midway had been owned by another company called Bally since 1969, who manufactured pinball machines. Williams Electronics then purchased Bally Midway, as they were known, in 1988. This group is often referred to as Williams Bally Midway, but for simplicity, I'll just call them Midway from here. So they released this game. It was a simple two-on-two basketball game, very different in style from NBA Jam, uh, but you know, there was all those those key trademarks over there. At least you could see glimmers of them. You know, the, the pace of the play was very fast. Uh, there was kind of this lighthearted feel. And it was definitely a quarter muncher. So yeah, so this game did really well. And there was uh, this possibility of it being a four-player game because of its success. But Nauman and Colin didn't want to make a four-player game. Arch Rivals was a two-player game, and that was that. And then around the same time, Mark Jamel came along. And he started working on several games over at Williams Ballet Midway. Yeah, I started at uh, Midway back in 1989. And I've always been a fan of the arcade games, um, you know, coin-operated games. And so I went out and uh, joined them uh, with the intent of making a dual joystick uh, shooter game, uh, which turned out to be Smash TV. Uh, Robotron is my favorite game of all time. So came out and worked on that. Mark Tamell broke into the industry after programming his own games for the Apple II as a teenager in his basement. He then developed titles for the Atari 2600 and worked for Hasbro Electronics before arriving at Midway. Working alongside Robotron creator Eugene Jarvis, Smash TV was his first entry in the coin-op business. It was based around a violent dystopian game show where you play as a contestant who has to shoot their way through fellow challenges in order to survive and ultimately win the game. The next title Mark worked on was Total Carnage, which was a similar directional shooter, before he got the chance to take the lead on one of Midway's next big games, a return to the sports genre. Well, I've always been a big um, NBA fan, a basketball fan. I'm a big sports fan, just generally. But back in that era, you know, 1989, 1990, that was really the dawn of digitized graphics. Uh, You know, there were no digital cameras. You didn't have the ability to kind of record things and put it onto a digital screen. Uh, And so that was the very beginning of taking, uh, you know, we would take videotape and run it through a digitizer 
that would, you know, create frames and we'd put it on the screen. And it was like, wow, you know, look at that. That's a, that's, you know, a photograph right there on my computer screen. Albeit a low resolution and low color fidelity. But it was the dawn of that era, that technology. So we were more so geeking out on what is a great application for digitized, you know, imagery. Uh, and that's how, uh, like Ed Boone and, and the Mortal Kombat team, John Tobias, John is a great artist, but the technology of digitizing uh, fighters to actually record, you know, a real, you know, character, a human, and then put it into the, into the game um, was a driving force to, you know, to the game. And so likewise with sports, um, that's a natural fit to, uh, to have players running around. Uh, it wasn't uh, an NBA planned game right off the bat. I just assumed that that license would be too hard to acquire, too expensive. Um, so we uh, recorded athletes just local that I found on the streets of Chicago. So it really grew out of geeking out on digitized graphics. The team that worked on NBA Jam was pretty small compared to many dev teams today at similar-sized companies, but they were a fairly tight-knit and collaborative group. Here's Rayan. It was a great office to work in. Uh, in that way, everybody was very open with their ideas. They would criticize stuff. Uh, Tramel has always regarded himself as the referee of the development process. You know, he's seen himself as the person in the middle who's figuring out what are the good ideas and what are the bad ideas. And NBA Jam was one of the big times where he really got to showcase his leadership skills over there because he's going back and forth between these different ideas. Um, he was definitely happy to delegate too. So yeah, it was a really interesting office in the way that, you know, they were surrounded by video games. They all love video games. They were all very into the idea of this. Just a handful of basketball fans on the team. And so yeah, you know, they ultimately wanted to make a really good arcade game. There were some sports fans and non-sports fans, but the end goal of the project was always putting together a really fun arcade game above all, whether it would appeal to sports fans or not. In addition to Mark Tamel as the lead designer, the team also included artists Tony Gosky, Sal DeVita and John Carlton, composer and sound designer John Hay, and programmers Jamie Rivette and Sean Liptak. My name is Sean Liptak and I am a computer programmer. I've been working in the video game industry for right about 30 years now. Mark and I worked well together because it was just him and I on Total Carnage. And he's a programmer, but really at heart, he's more a game designer than he is a programmer. So technically Mark and I fit together well because he was always dreamed big and had lots of ideals and stuff. And I typically was like the technical person who was like, well, if we do it like this, it'll be even better and we should do it like this. And I didn't care as much about the design overall, like the gameplay, it's like, just make it fun and cool and I'm okay. I didn't care anything about basketball. I was like, why do you want to do a sports game? And But Mark basically sold me on it. He was like, oh, this could be a great success. And basically just convinced me that this would be a smart thing to do. Like this could be very successful, you know? And I was like, okay. <laughs> so he would worry about like, oh, we need all these dunks and you know, all this cool stuff and all these different moves and all the, the bigger design type stuff. And I was over there worrying about all like the technical stuff of like, how are we gonna 
pull all this off and make it all work and, and get the programming done. So even though back then we didn't have titles like we have now on Teams typically, we were just programmers and there were artists and there was a sound guy. That's literally how we described the entire Teams. It, it so happened that our sound designer, um, John Hay, he was like a basketball geek too. So he would come down and play the game all the time and telling us what he liked and didn't like. And that's how the whole team really was. We all just played it and argued and this is too slow, too fast. You got to change this. Well, you know, and, and we had some good lively debates, but that's how the whole game was developed was like just literally arguing about what's fun or not. Well, you should do this. Well, I don't know. And, and we went back and forth like that for a year. All the ideas kind of would go on to, you know, the table, so to speak. And I would kind of keep the things that I thought were highest value. Uh, and so there was a lot of, you know, lobbying, a lot of people saying, you know, do this, don't do that, this sucks. And that's what makes a great game is when you have everybody engaged in being able to get their ideas into the game. And so while we couldn't do everything and, you know, some things would drop off the table, uh, it was a really um, collaborative effort. Mark's vision for NBA Jam was clear. It would take some inspiration from arch rivals in that it was a two-on-two basketball game, but it would go far beyond what people expected from a typical sports game of the era. This was an approach the Midway team called exaggerated reality. I'm not a fan of sim style games. So the, you know, dealing with all the numbers and, uh, you know, the subtleties of a, a simulation sports video game and being a big arcade fan, you know, kind of the natural over the top approach was there from day one, you know, lickety split on the movement, you know, turn around 180 degrees in you know, in one frame kind of thing. Um, and so that was just the mindset of, you know, of playing video games. Mark wanted NBA Jam to be fast and exciting so that when you walk by the cabinet in the arcade, you can't help but put in a couple of quarters and give it a try. And this manifested in those wild design elements that NBA Jam became known for. Players leaping high into the air for huge superhuman dunks, long three-pointers and downtown shooting, and the ability to push and shove your opponent. Balancing the gameplay was also important too, ensuring it was always a compelling experience for the player. That's the most important part in in any of these games, is the tuning and the balance. And the amount of time that um, that I spent uh, noodling with numbers for you know deflected passes or you know bank shots or you know, errant passes, air balls, uh, the speeds, you know, the, the pushing, the variety and the animations, the, you know, the launching points, the distances, and then eventually the CPU assistance, which would rubber band and try to keep the game, you know, uh, tighter. Uh, I spent uh, so much time, I mean, probably worked 18 hours a day, um, just tweaking. Once the game was was all playable, just tweaking numbers over and over and playing it nonstop. Uh, and that's really critical in, especially in these sports games, but I mean, in, in all genres, I mean, fighting, you know, it's just so important to have the right uh, tuning. So it was top of mind uh, then, uh, and it's still that way today. 
This mechanic known as rubber banding, which Mark coded into the game, was perhaps the most important component to the gameplay. Here's Ryan Ali. And this is, if you ask me, is one of NBA Jam's most brilliant moves. And this is one of the reasons that people still love to play NBA Jam. So there was an idea within NBA Jam of this rubber banding mechanic, which was, I believe the way that it was described was that there, these, there were two different players that were connected by a rubber band. Like imagine the two teams were connected by one rubber band and as farther as one moves farther away from the other, the other one will slowly in turn catch up too. So in the event that let's say you're leading in a game and you're just demolishing your opponent, your opponent will eventually be able to catch up based on this rubber banding effect. And this created seesaw games. So, you know, unless you're a super skilled NBA Jam player, you're going to end up playing games that are going to end up with, you know, just maybe a couple points difference, if that. Um, and those nail biters were such a huge part of the NBA Jam's appeal because people would get so invested in the idea of this game. And, you know, rubber banding was really one of Mark Tomello's master strokes. Another contributing factor was one of NBA Jam's most memorable features, on fire mode. When we got the game running, we were you know playing back and forth, and there was just something missing. Uh, and I was walking, uh, I had um, one of the best engineers, in fact, I still work with him today. Uh, his name's Jamie Rivette. I actually brought him in from um, Melbourne. He grew up there in Australia, and he did a... Um, smash tv uh, port to the super nintendo and that's how we met and we were walking to burger king every day at lunch and you know we were just lamenting the fact there was something missing and then he had the idea he said well why don't we have some kind of a fire mode like an overpowered mode uh where you know players can aspire to get onto it uh and then it you know it amps everything up and you know we immediately recognized that that was just a you know, fabulous uh, suggestion. And over the course of that lunch, we kind of blocked out the, you know, make three shots in a row, you know, be heating up, uh, be able to goaltend when you're on defense, you know, um, you know, high percentage on uh, scoring, you know, add smoke trail to the ball. That aspect of the game really became key, of course, because uh, it does change everything. You can be down, and now you can get on fire and come from behind. When you're heating up, it changes the behavior of the defensive team to try to prevent, you know, a particular player from, you know, from catching on fire because it was so powerful. And then, of course, it impacted the UI with, you know, flames um, around your name and and the effects, uh, and that's what really led us to making more exaggerated dunks. So when you are on fire, we thought, hey, you know, we could uh, amp up the, you know, the, the excitement of the move. Uh, and then we did that. And that was kind of felt so good that um, we sprinkled that in, you know, more so even when not on fire. Uh, and so it was really that, uh, that, that walk to lunch over to Burger King that uh, changed the game um, pretty dramatically. The inclusion of stats, as Mark mentioned earlier, was woven into all of this too, once the game was on test. And adding to NBA Jam's appeal were the visuals. The digitised graphics were pretty revolutionary for the time, and the TV broadcast presentation complemented that as well. Here's Sean Littack. 
it did this like scrolling perspective effect. But in reality, that was a 2D game. It had a 2D graphics chip in it. And in order to scroll the court like that, we were having to move each line independently. Each horizontal line of the court was, was scrolled separately to give you that perspective feel, that like parallax scrolling. And that was something I saw like in Street Fighter, one of the Street Fighter games. And I was like, oh, look how they move the floor on the, the ground there because Street Fighter, you know, that was a 2D game back then too. So I knew, oh yeah, they're just scrolling the lines at separate speeds to give you that effect. So, you know, I was like, oh, we could do that too. And then like, that was one of the things Mark had said to me, like, just think if we work on this basketball game, you could make the court really cool and you could do all, you know, that was the kind of stuff he used to sell me on working on the game. I was like, yeah, I could do that. And so I ran off and did it. And he couldn't have a broadcast presentation without an announcer. Hi everyone, Tim Kittrow here from NBA Jam. Tim Kittrow was a regular around the Midway office. He was friends with a couple of sound engineers from playing in bands and wound up recording voiceovers for Midway's pinball games. So when the NBA Jam team were looking for a basketball commentator, they knew who to turn to. People always ask me, did you know it was going to be a hit? You know, was there pressure? You know, did they audition other people? No, they didn't audition anyone else. There was just, uh, you know, a couple guys in the, the back of the factory in the little sound room. And, uh, you know, we put the whole thing together. They just said, yeah, give us, you know, we need audio. <laughs> so John John Hay, the guy who uh, composed that great music score for NBA Jam, he was also in charge of, you know, hiring the talent, uh, writing the script and uh, putting the sound effects in. Tim's NBA Jam persona was inspired by longtime NBA announcer Marv Albert. Many of the lines were similar to what you might hear on a typical broadcast in the 80s or 90s. Some phrases were improvised and other lines were scripted around the various gameplay features. However, Tim also put his own flavour on things, giving much-needed energy to those now iconic catchphrases. He's heating up! He's on fire! Boom shakalaka! And what I would do is I would I would go into my head, you know, my acting training taught me like to act with, uh, you know, with objectives and purpose and to have a, a, you know, an inner life. So, yeah, there was, you know, improv where, you know, any session I do with sports, we all have a thousand uh, things we've heard in our, our head uh, from you know, watching millions of telecasts. So things will just blurt out. But you know that that call, when it's done right and it's in the game, that's what gets people going. So, you know, trying to maintain that integrity, no matter how long a script is, how tired you are to stay in that moment, is uh, one of the things I, I pride myself in and realize that it's essential for making a good game. Well, I mean, Tim's, uh, I mean, he's amazing. He's a genius. Uh, he's so quick-witted. You know, he's always uh, willing to, you know, iterate and improve and take feedback. Uh, and so he was friends with, you know, a couple of the, uh, the sound engineers. So uh, John Hay, uh, he said, hey, I'm going to bring Tim in. Uh, we're going to record some VO. Uh, we have all these NBA names that need to be called uh, with different inflections, you know. And so John said, hey, let's make a category you know, give me where do you want sound calls? Uh, and so we uh, created just a list of, uh, you know, big dunk, 
you know, stolen pass, uh, deflection, uh, three-pointer. Uh, and so it was the obvious kind of categories that we needed to uh, record samples in. Uh, and when Tim went into the studio, he would uh, just ad lib. He would start with, get that out of here. And then, you know, he would, he would go from there. And it was magic, you know, immediately. It turned out, of course, to be one of the calling cards uh, of the game, whether it be the boom shakalaka or, you know, he's on fire. It was, you know, um, a key component uh, to the game. Get that stuff out of here! Is it the shoes? NBA Jam had all the makings of an arcade classic, but the final ingredient that elevated everything, the NBA. After the break, how Midway secured the NBA licence on its way to $1 billion in quarters. That's next on Gameplay. There are so many places to go for games content these days, so thank you for listening to Gameplay. Every episode is meticulously crafted over weeks of production to give you a great listening experience. So if you appreciate the stories you hear on the show and the work it takes to bring them to you, please consider becoming a Gameplay member. Memberships are just $5 US dollars a month or $50 US dollars a year, and your support will be actively helping to make Gameplay sustainable. There's a bunch of benefits for members, including an ad-free feed, bonus content, and a Gameplay sticker pack. If you can't contribute monetarily, there's a free tier as well, but if you can, sign up now at gameplay.co slash membership. Thanks so much. Imaginary Worlds is a podcast about science fiction and other fantasy genres hosted by Eric Malinsky. I've been a listener to the show for about five years now, and I love Eric's approach to storytelling, because while these worlds may be set on distant planets or parallel dimensions, they're crafted here on Earth, and there's always a connection to our daily lives. Eric talks with novelists, filmmakers, comic book artists, and game designers about how they craft their fictional worlds, why we suspend our disbelief, and what happens if the spell is broken. Imaginary Worlds has covered some of the biggest sci-fi and fantasy franchises, like Star Wars, Game of Thrones, and Marvel. And Eric has told some incredible stories around video games as well, like The Galactic Wars of EVE Online, World of Warcraft's Virtual Pandemic, and the insidious nature of Animal Crossing's Tom Nook. Eric spent over a decade as a reporter in public radio, and he uses his expertise to craft thoughtfully produced, sound-rich stories with new episodes published every other Wednesday. If you love gameplay, I think you'll love Imaginary Worlds too. Listen wherever you get podcasts or visit imaginaryworldspodcast.org. In the early 90s, licensed sports games weren't really a thing. As Mark Tamell explained earlier, he wasn't hopeful of getting the rights to use the NBA name, so the project wasn't even called NBA Jam initially. 
But I do have like an early sheet of, you know, the ideas and kind of the control schemes, the mechanics that were intended. Uh, and on that, I actually had it called Showtime, uh, which eventually I did a game called NBA Showtime a few years later. But uh, Showtime was the original name, uh, even before the NBA was involved. But then eventually, um, you know, NBA Jam was my first uh, thought um, when we got the NBA license. As development got underway, Midway were actively pursuing a deal with the NBA, but it took some time to convince them. We put together a video in that first month or so that we had started to develop the game. Uh, You know, we had a couple of guys running back and forth, you know, on the screen. You know, the ball was kind of glitching down to the ground and back up to their hands. And we put together a presentation, you know, hey, we're making a, you know, basketball game. We would like to have the NBA license. Uh, There's this new digitized, you know, technology. Uh, Here's an example of how good a player can look. But it was just our, you know, local athletes. Uh, And... Uh, but you could see, you know, flesh tone and lighting, and you could see it was a digitized image, um, you know, versus a hand-drawn game, which is all they were used to. And we sent it to them, uh, and we got a response back pretty quickly, about a week, that um, said that they were declining uh, the opportunity because, you know, they did not want their NBA logo to be displayed uh, in arcades. And uh, we had a licensing um, you know, guy at uh, Williams Valley Midway there, uh, Roger Sharp. And he called them up. He said, what, uh, you know, what, what do you mean? And the, the guy there in, in charge of licensing at the NBA said, well, we have this arcade right here in Times Square that um, has a lot of, you know, kind of you know, rough things happening there. I think there's probably drug sales and, you know, they're open 24 hours and it's kind of a, you know, a rough place. And we don't want to, you know, we don't want to put our logo right there in the midst of that. And so we realized what the problem was. And, you know, that while no doubt that arcade was rather rough and there were others, the majority of arcades in the country you know, were more family entertainment centers and the bowling alleys and, you know, Aladdin's castles and, you know, things in malls. Uh, and so we put together a, um, a video that uh, more accurately represented uh, the arcade business of that day and included, of course, you know, families playing, you know, ski ball and, you know, people, you know, kids playing pinball machines in nice uh, family entertainment centers. Uh, and we sent that off. And luckily, uh, they um, responded and said, okay, you know, we get it. And surprisingly, we got the, um, you know, we got the deal, we got the license, and they were um, supportive. Um, they tried to send us any kind of materials that, that we thought would be helpful, some photos, you know, things like that. Uh, so it was it was uh, a no at the start, and then it became a yes. By the time NBA Jam was on test in Chicago arcades, its cabinet was adorned with the orange dotted pattern of a basketball and the instantly recognisable red, white and blue NBA logo. 
the heads of real NBA players were then also put into the game using the same digitised process, replacing the faces of the local basketball players from earlier builds. Game development can often be a long process, but remarkably, NBA Jam was completed in just 10 months. You know, the 10-month time frame was key because um, inside Midway we would get um, like 50% more royalties if you got it out in 10 months versus 12 months kind of thing. Uh, and so we were rushing to, to get to that stage, but we played the game in my office just nonstop. We would, you know, tweak some things. I would call over uh, John Hay, who was doing the sounds. I would call over Sal DeVita, who was working on art. You know, we would we would always have games running, and we were big gamblers. I'm a big uh, gambler, and so we would be, um, you know, playing for either cash or vending machine products. You know, anything we could. And so during that, those last three or four months. Uh, the game was just being played nonstop, and I tweaked it uh, nonstop. I would pause, fix it, call people back. You know, play it, pause, fix it, call people back. Uh, and so that was kind of the, the daily uh, routine, you know, to improve it. NBA Jam was introduced at the NBA's All-Star Weekend in February 1993, ahead of its official release in April that year. And it was the beginning of something special. Here's Rayan. The NBA Jam team always believed in the game and they had a good feeling that it was going to do well. But then at the NBA All-Star Weekend, uh, 993 in Salt Lake City, when the NBA had shipped out some NBA Jam cabinets to put on site uh, for fans to play at this All-Star Weekend. And when the Midway representatives saw that people were lining up to play the game over here and these passionate NBA fans loved it, not just those arcade players in Chicago, you know, they really knew it was something special then. And in fact, that was when the NBA recognized that NBA Jam could really be big. In the coin-op business, you know, if you can get somebody to put quarters in, reach into their pocket, go to the cash machine, the change machine, and put money in, you know, that's like really telling. It's very democratic, whether you like it or not. And so we saw this time and time again as we would develop games out of, you know, the Chicago studio where some would roll in and, you know, people just walk right by it. They just don't get engaged. They play it once, they walk away. Another game would go in and then you've got a, a line of people putting, you know, quarters on the cabinet. And that happens the first night. It is truly amazing. And in the case of NBA GM, you know, they saw it. They recognized like, oh, wow, you know, look at this NBA uh, and they put their monies, their money down, and it was an expensive game. It was, you know, it was a fifty cents per period game, you know, two dollars for a full a full game. So we knew instantly that it was going to be a hit. When Jam was rolling out into the arcades in Chicago, there was a part of Mark that was skeptical about whether the game would resonate beyond the city. This was the early 90s at the height of Michael Jordan mania, and the same year the Chicago Bulls completed a championship three-peat. So Mark travelled to LA to gauge how the game was going elsewhere. And the same thing was happening in LA in Westwood, except that the players were picking the Lakers. Uh, and so it really was that moment where I said to myself, wow, you know, this, 
this is going to happen in every NBA city at the very least. And this is going to happen around the country. And sure enough, that's exactly, you know, what happened. That was the moment, though, where I realized that we had something special. In its first year, NBA Jam made $1 billion in the arcades alone, which is just incredible. A billion dollars, one quarter slash token at a time, which is just crazy to think about. But, you know, that was just the level of excitement that there was for the game. I mean, people were writing NBA Jam strategy guides. They were, you know, there was all these uh, little arcade rivalries being built up for it. Mark Trammell talked about fist fights happening over NBA Jam. But due to a combination of that game's really appealing license and the fact that it was such a great game itself, people were so interested in playing it that NBA Jam's success just hit a completely different level. Making a billion dollars with an arcade game is very hard to do, especially in the time frame that NBA Jam did it in. And just to contextualize it, what that meant was that not only did uh, this game reach a certain level of criteria that meant that Mark Trammell would be paid more, um, you know, a certain royalty level that was, you know, just so sky high, nobody really thought that you could get there. You know, NBA Jam got there and then, you know, Mark Trammell managed to uh, to reap some of the, the benefits of that. But it actually made more money than Mortal Kombat. And of course, Mortal Kombat was the was everywhere in 1992. And to think that NBA Jam came on top, that was just crazy. NBA Jam had it all. Great visuals, awesome sound, and compelling and highly competitive gameplay to match but the official NBA license is what helped its popularity soar. Oh, I mean, it had to be uh, 70, 80% of the success, probably. Um, uh, that's at the same time that the number one movie of all time um, had come out, Jurassic Park, was, you know, obviously known around the world. And, you know, that was like a $300 million uh, box office. Uh, and so when you think about 4 billion quarters, you know, going in, to play those games, um, to you know, to make a billion dollars in revenue, it just touched so many people. The game was also popular with NBA players, something that Mark took a lot of joy from, being such a huge basketball fan himself. And so I immediately started getting uh, feedback that, hey, how come you know, how come I'm not in the game? How come this guy's not in the game? Uh, and so there became a. Um, kind of a communication channel into Midway. Uh, and one in particular was uh, Gary Payton, who was, um, didn't make the cut. Uh, he, was, um, he was a rookie that year. I knew of him from, uh, I believe he's, he uh, played at um, Berkeley. So I was aware of him as a, as a player and he was, he was good, but he was a rookie. I didn't know if he was going to pan out. Uh, and he did, of course. He became a superstar in his first year. So he was mad right off the bat that he wasn't in the game. He sent me all of his photos to get put into the game, uh, and we eventually did that. But the best story was uh, probably in the first month of the game being released, we got a uh, contacted from uh, the distributor in Orlando and said that Shaq uh, wanted to buy two games for the non-sports fans, that's Shaquille O'Neal. And he, uh, this is a crazy story, what they did. You know, this is the beginning where a lot of teams started to buy their own private jets to fly, you know, the two or three times a week as they were traveling. 
And so the Orlando Magic had uh, recently purchased their, you know, their team jet. Uh, and they brought one of the NBA Jam cabinets onto the jet uh, and it traveled with them on the road and they would wheel it up into Shaq's um, hotel suite. Uh, and the players, instead of going out and partying or clubbing, they would go in. And I eventually talked to him um, a year or so later. And he said, yeah, we, you know, it just became this big gambling circumstance where everybody would come in and we would just play and play as each other. Even the opposing team would come in uh, the night before the game or after the game and play. Uh, and so he kept one at home and then they kept one on the road. And so that's probably the best, you know, kind of NBA connected story uh, that came out of it. The league's biggest player, though, was actually missing from NBA Jam entirely. Well, when the midway team was originally designing NBA Jam and they were asking the NBA for uh, for them to sign off on the players that they wanted for the game, of course, they asked for Michael Jordan. But, you know, the reality was that Michael Jordan's branding or rather his licensing was separate from the rest of the leagues. You know, if you wanted to get a game featuring Michael Jordan, you had to go through Michael Jordan. And in that case, you were talking about paying a whole lot more money. And for Midway, that just wasn't feasible at the time. So they scrapped the idea of Michael Jordan being in the game. Um, and then, lo and behold, NBA Jam became so popular that somebody from Michael Jordan's camp actually reached out to Midway to ask them to make a special version of the game that featured Michael in it. So Michael Jordan went from not appearing in NBA Jam because of this licensing slash money issue to wanting to be in the game because the game was so big. So the developers of Midway heard this, and of course they said, yeah, we'll make a special version for him. So they created a special version of NBA Jam. They then shipped on over to uh, Michael Jordan's place. So Michael Jordan's real connection to NBA Jam went from it being an urban legend that he was maybe hidden in the game to an actual version of the game being made that was just for him. That still, unfortunately, hasn't seen the light of day. NBA Jam has had its fair share of rumours and myths that have circulated amongst fans over the years regarding various cheat codes and hidden secrets in the game. Many of them, like the appearance of Michael Jordan, weren't true, but they were likely fueled by the ones that were, like secret playable celebrity characters and Big Head Mode. Oh, and then the other one that was actually, like, this was really a goofy thing that just happened. There was this hidden tank game in NBA Jam. Again, this is programmer Sean Liptak. So I'm the one who wrote that. And I did that as just a fun side project in the middle of the summer. We were about halfway through the game. And we had these guys who were working on a um, 3D graphics chip of our own. And so I was just messing around. And 3D graphics had always fascinated me. So I was like, I wonder... I was like, I could draw triangles on the screen. You just need to be able to draw triangles. So I'd figured out a way to do, to use our graphics chip, the scaling of the graphics chip to just draw an arbitrary line across the screen. And then I would draw a whole series of them to fill in a triangle. Well, that's turned into the tank game because I've always liked tanks and little crappy drive around, shoot each other type things. So I just turned that into this little tank game it was just like literally just like a graphics demo or whatever. And then, you know, it was basically just done or whatever. But by, at some point by the end of the project, we were like, oh, we could make that a hidden Easter egg kind of thing. So that's when we put in the whole, well, if you push the stick a certain way in the buttons, it would launch you into the tank game. 
and you had to do it when right before the, the game screen loaded. Another glitch was actually completely unintentional, experienced by Mark and some of the Midway team. But it led to an urban legend about ghost stories around NBA Jam. Yeah, super spooky. Um, when the first NBA Jam uh, came out, New Jersey had you know a player, you know Drazen Petrovic, that you know made the roster, made the cut, uh, and he um, he was he was really great player, uh, and uh, you know he died. Um, there in, in that era there and I must've been in 93 or so. And we took, uh, him out of the game, uh, and we put in, you know, the next, um, kind of player, uh, as we advanced, we went into NBA jam tournament edition, um, and, you know, expanded the roster. Uh, but when, you know, we would have arcade games, in our warehouse, you know, at night we were working till, you know, one, two, three AM and we would walk through the factory where they're building the games, building the pinball machines. And every once in a while, um, the game would just scream out, Petrovich, you know, Petrovich. Uh, and it was really uh, crazy and everybody started to hear it and there was no reason for it. Um, and so it was It was kind of spooky and is, is that part of that story. Petrovich's death in a road accident in June 1993 was sudden and shook the NBA at the time. So you can understand the eerie feeling the Midway team experienced as the game was taking off that summer. But Sean Liptak may have an explanation. That is weird. I've actually never heard of that. Although I do, I, I do kind of remember, though, the, arc, the, uh, the soundboard because it was its own like little board that has it had its own processor on and and so it was like a separate little computer that yeah I think it did occasionally have a few some a little bit of glitchiness where like it would sometimes make sound calls that it wasn't supposed to so that's probably the same thing it's it's probably a variation of that Jam arrived at a time when the NBA was experiencing huge growth, both in the United States and around the world. The Bulls were dominating and Jordan Fever swept the globe. That excitement certainly contributed to the game's success, but in turn, NBA Jam also boosted the popularity of basketball. Here's Mark. And I've had a lot of people over the years, uh, in especially um, younger um, kids, that said, you know, I was never really into the NBA. Um, I was not a fan until I started playing NBA Jam, and then it led me into being a fan of, of the NBA. And so, in a, in, and it seems crazy to think, but I think in one, in some small fashion, NBA Jam actually did inflect the popularity uh, of the NBA. And I, I really believe that it had um, a positive impact on the NBA just generally. NBA Jam was the just the perfect storm of ideas at the right time. And because of the success, I think it had really opened a lot of people's eyes to what the NBA was too. So aside from it being a great game, uh, it introduced a lot of people to basketball. In fact, I'm one of them. The very first time I really remember ever paying attention to the NBA was because of an NBA Jam tournament edition ad on the back of a comic book. And that love, uh, or rather that interest in that comic book ad, then led me to try NBA Jam, and I loved it. And then 
I got into the NBA because of that. And stories like this are actually not that far-fetched. I mean, there's people out there that are only going to recognize Deadless Schrempf uh, from the Seattle Supersonics because he was an NBA jam. And there's certain players that are going to live in history because of that. So, you know, the, the game's effect was just really widespread. And I don't think it was something that, you know, Mark Jamel, even in his wildest fantasies, never thought that NBA Jam would hit the levels that it did. NBA Jam was swiftly ported to Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis, and handheld consoles in 93, before its sequel, Tournament Edition, hit the arcades in 1994. And its success saw Midway become a leader in arcade-style sports games, with series like NFL Blitz, NHL Hits, and MLB Slugfest. And NBA Jam maintained a trend of intermittent releases through the 90s and early 2000s, when Acclaim, the publisher of the home console versions, obtained full rights to the NBA Jam name in 1996. Eventually, Acclaim went bankrupt in 2004, as did Midway in 2009, and the rights were then acquired by EA, who went on to publish a reimagining of NBA Jam in 2010 for mobile and consoles, which Mark Tamell consulted on. And so I joined EA uh, when Midway melted down. And quickly after that, uh, the team in Vancouver, they have a lot of the sports you know, efforts happen in the Vancouver studio, including their you know, FIFA soccer. And they said, hey, you know, we're going to pick up and do this NBA GM. And so um, being an employee and you know, being in the sports division, I flew out to um, Vancouver and you know, stepped through the game and stepped through all of the, the little secrets, those camera modes, the timing, the percentaging, um, the things that, um, that I had done previous, uh, and went through all that. So, uh, really proud of that, uh, that team. They did a really good job, um, you know, reviving the, um, the brand, the game. And, um, you know, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Unlike many of the big sports franchises, NBA Jam has never had annual editions, which doesn't really work for arcade-style games anyway. But despite that, Jam continues to remain relevant. In 2020, Arcade 1UP, who make four-foot arcade cabinets with modern displays and sound, released an NBA Jam machine for that classic arcade experience. And the company even has plans to bring Jam to esports tournaments in the future. It's a testament to just how good NBA Jam is. I think it really comes down to the core mechanics of that game. Because if you look at it, so many games are, are all flash and it's just kind of like, yeah, those graphics look nice, but so what? I tend to be, you know, I tend to have a very pretty high bar when it comes to games. And I've seen, you know, every type of game over the years, all manner of things. And it's just, it's hard to impress me. Um, and a lot of stuff, I look at it and a lot of things are just very shallow. You play them for like an hour and I'm like, yeah, I'm bored. This is not fun. I, it, and it always comes back to you got to make your game fun. If it's not a fun mechanic that you like repeating and doing, and you're not gonna, you're not gonna spend the time on the product. You're not gonna tell your friends. It's you know, it's not gonna become successful. And NBA Jam for I can look at it now and go like, yeah, the graphics are dated and it's all 
you know, it looks kind of simple and stuff, but as soon as you start playing that game, it's just fun. And then you, when you do combine it with those catchphrases, the boom shakalaka, um, you know, type things, then it just becomes even more memorable. Um, but at the end of the day, I have to say that the game was fun. You know, it, if the game hadn't been fun, you know, none of that would have happened. You wouldn't have the billion dollars. You wouldn't have the, the six million cartridges. You know, it just wouldn't have happened. So it still boils down to, you know, the stories I always hear from, from now, you know, grownups say, yeah, I played with my brother. I used to beat my dad. You know, I couldn't beat my friend. You know, I get, became a grand champion. I beat all 30 teams. You know, just the, the competition in the families, um, that's what um, also makes it just kind of connect and be memorable. Thanks so much to Rayan Ali, Tim Kitzrow, Mark Tamell, and Sean Liptak. Rayan's book, NBA Jam, is available now from Boss Fight Books. There is so much more to the story that we couldn't fit into the episode, so I encourage you to check it out. It's an excellent read. And this is only part one of our two-part series on NBA Jam. On the next episode, the story of Tim Kitzrow, the voice of NBA Jam. We get into Tim's early days in acting and improv, how the Boom Shakalaka catchphrase came about, and how he forged a career in video games as an iconic voiceover artist. The song you're hearing right now is called He's On Fire by Boom Baptist from the NBA Jam-inspired album Boom Shakalaka. You can pick it up on Bandcamp, and there's a link to that in the episode description and on our website, gameplay.co. Gameplay is a production of Lawson Media. This episode was written and produced by me, James Parkinson. The gameplay theme was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our artwork is by Keegan Sanford and additional music from Epidemic Sound and Breakmaster Cylinder. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Gameplay Podcast and come and join our Discord where you can talk games with me and your fellow listeners and if you'd like an ad-free feed of the show, become a Gameplay member. You'll find a link to join plus episode transcripts and further reading on our website, gameplay.co. Thanks for listening.